We made it. <laughs> We're here. Sunday number one. With every bump and bruise along the way and throughout even today. As we were setting stuff up and things get a little wonky and weird. And that's all okay. We're really thankful. My name is Josh and I am the pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. Which is a crazy thing to say. It's been a really long journey. Me and my wife Brittany moved here in 2013 to help plant another church in Bexley, that's our sending church. And so we've been in the city of Columbus now uh, for eight years, and we fell in love with this place and with this city. And so when it came kind of time to say, what do you want to do next? We said, we want to plant a church. And we want to plant another one right here in Columbus because we, we love this place. We don't want to leave the city. And so we began to pray and search out where God might have us do that. And as we looked at things, and I took these big maps and Google Maps, and I started doing population divided by churches that preach the gospel, this little square started to really stick out to me. The square that is kind of south of I-70, but north of Georgeville Road, Alton Darby kind of cuts you off, and then 270 on the other side, is massively unchurched. Now that is not in any way disparaging to the churches who do exist here. We're really thankful for every church that preaches the gospel. But the reality is there's about 47,000 to 50,000 people who live here, and only a handful of churches to serve them. And so we looked at that and we said, we want to start a new work right here so that we might reach people in a better way for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come alongside other church churches who are doing that thing. And so as I do that, and we come, that's kind of our story and what we're doing, and we're planting and starting this new church, we have to answer a really kind of important question on our first Sunday and in the next couple Sundays is just, what kind of a church are we going to be? And that's something that I, we can talk about and I can put on a piece of paper. Some of you have sat in informational meetings and I've tried to say this is the kind of church we want to be. But in the end, the kind of church that we actually are falls in our hands. But we actually live out who we're actually going to be. And so over the next five weeks, I want to take us through just a brief series on the DNA of our church. We will then, after that, start studying the book of Titus together and talk about what does it look like to become a faith family. And so these next couple months for us are really important. It's all about DNA. It's all about who are we going to be. So these next five weeks we're going to do that. Today is a little bit of a bonus sermon. I'm just going to preach broadly of what the church is supposed to be. And then we're going to take four weeks to preach through our four pillars. Gospel, change, community, and mission. What it means to be a church that's centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that God sent his son to die for our sins and then rose again from the dead and conquered sin and death. What it means to be a church that is committed to seeing one another change and become more and more like Jesus over time. Because we know we're not perfect and we're on a journey towards Christ-likeness. And we're walking with him in that. And in that, as you can see, what I just said, one another, is we're a community that's going to love each other. And we really hope our community is really diverse and different, that there are people who are older and little babies who walked out of here and all those things in between because we know that that's God's family. That's what God's family is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look really multifaceted and those things that make us different and sometimes we agitate each other, those things, that's what makes us more like Jesus. And then we have to do that together and so that's community, what it looks like to love one another and then finally we do that so that we might go on mission. Jesus has sent us on a mission to go and to reach 
the nations and reach our neighbors as well with that good news and that gospel. So that's what we're going to try to do. So in the next five weeks, I'm going to try to paint this picture of what it looks like. And then over the rest of our church's lifetime, we're going to be trying to, to make that actually happen, to render that. But here's what's really interesting about that. And every church that you've ever been to is they're not perfect. If you came to here because you thought, man, this new church, they're going to get it right. I can already tell you, you're the wrong spot. There will be things about us that are imperfect, that are bumpy, that are different, and even things that really matter that we still have to work out and keep getting right. And it makes me think uh, maybe like when a kid draws a picture of his parents. Uh, up on the screen here, I want to show you a picture of, of Kendall. So this is Kendall and his son, Josiah. I'll kind of maybe move off to the side just a little bit so everybody can see it. Kendall is our, our worship leader. They're hanging out on a beach somewhere in Florida. Uh, lucky. Um, as we just deal with humidity. And that's his son, Josiah. You see Kendall here, he's a tall guy. Kendall's like six foot five. Uh, he's bald, he has glasses, and he wears a beard. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of stuff. And, and Josiah recently has become really, really um, obsessed with drawing pictures of his parents. And let's go ahead and see how well Josiah did when he drew a picture of his dad. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Not bad, look at it, I mean, he's bald, he's got glasses. I think this is a beard, that scrabbly thing down there. He's got his legs really long, you can see, because he knows his dad's really tall. And so he's doing pretty good. But when I showed you the picture, you all laughed. And you all laughed because it's not exactly perfect, right? He's pretty good. He did a really great job. But it's not as good as the real thing. And that's what we have to do in the next five weeks. We know we're going to open up the scriptures, and we're going to look at the real thing what God wants us to be. And the reality is this, as we sit down and we try to render that ourselves, there's going to be times we look a lot more like Josiah's picture than the real people. But you know what's really great? Because when Josiah brings that picture to Kendall, you know what Kendall says? Oh, man, that is awesome, buddy. You did such a great job. Look, I'm nice and tall. You're right. Your dad's really tall. Oh, and they got glasses. Got my beard, and dude, you even got the hair right. <laughs> and that's what he says, because the son takes that to his father, his father looks at it, and he just loves it. And that's what our church gets to be, too. As we come, and we know it's going to be imperfect. It's not going to be all the things we hope and desire it to be. There's just a reality of being led by a sinner like me, and being sinners yourselves. We're far from perfect. But when we take that rendering and trying to create what God wants us to be, and we take that to our Father, we take that to the Lord, because of Christ and the work that He has done, He looks at that and He says, great job. I see it. I see what you're trying to do there. I see the resemblance of me that you're trying to create in this body of believers. I get it. And we know it's not perfect. Now, one day it will be. And that's the awesome news of the Christian gospel. One day, Jesus will come tearing through the skies, He'll call us up, all as one big church, and in that day, it will be we, as the Church of Christ, will look exactly as He always intended us. But until that day comes, we know we're kind of striving for this impossible goal. And so that's what I want us to do. So as we look at these next five weeks, today I want us to talk about what it looks like to be God-centered and people-oriented. And that's what we want to look at in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Let me get there myself. I'll read that text for us this morning as we look at what it looks like to be God-centered and then people-oriented. 
says, But when the Pharisees heard, they had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together as one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend on all the law and the prophets. So that's what we want to look at, is that we are God-oriented because we love God, or excuse me, God-centered because we love God, and that then forces us to be people-oriented, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so let's go ahead and we're going to dive right into this passage. And the first thing that I want us to see is this, is that the God-centered church is unique. So if we come into this passage, we're kind of just parachuting in. Usually we preach all the way through books of the Bible, so we don't have to do what I'm getting ready to do now. And that's catch you up to what's happening in the story. So as we come to this spot, what has been happening is Jesus, in Matthew 21, has been teaching this series of parables. And in those series of parables, he's been calling out these Pharisees and Sadducees, these law keepers. And in there, Jesus has been teaching that tax collectors, prostitutes, great sinners are going to enter in the kingdom of God before these legalists, before these law keepers, these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Well, as you can imagine, they don't like them. So what's actually what's really interesting is Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't even like each other. They actually have significant differences. Uh, Pharisees believe in the resurrection. Sadducees do not. If you're really familiar with the book of Acts, there's a time when Paul's taking some heat and to help himself out, he kind of starts an argument like, they're, 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 uh, they're coming after me because of the resurrection. So then they start infighting each other and he kind of gets to like, let's take a step back for a second. So those things that we know of these guys, they don't like each other. But what's really interesting is you have these two groups who don't like each other, but they've agreed on one thing. They don't like Jesus. They don't like this Jesus guy. Because Jesus is teaching something that's really radically different than the things that they've been teaching. Jesus has been teaching that people get to enter, enter into the kingdom of God, not by their works, by grace. Jesus has been preaching this message of grace, and these law keepers, they don't like it very much. Now here's the thing that we have to see, is it's really easy sometimes to read the Bible and be like, yeah, the Pharisees, those religious people, they're the bad guys. You're the bad guy too. Anyone who, who, who doesn't follow Jesus is a law keeper. You've just changed the laws. Pharisees and Sadducees don't agree what the laws are, but they agree that keeping the rules and following the rules, that's what's going to get you there. And we live in a world where that says a very similar kind of thing. Anything outside of the Christian gospel, even if they can't agree what the rules actually are, are still saying, just follow the rules, and the rules are going to get you there. And that's what I want you to see, is that Jesus' message which then means his church, is very, very unique. There is nothing in the world, even when the world doesn't agree with itself, that agrees with Jesus on that reality, the reality that you are saved, that you're brought into the kingdom of God by grace alone, that great sinners can be justified before God way before great Keeping the rules will not get you there. 
It's like vinegar and water, this gospel of law and this gospel of grace. They just don't mix. You can pour them in, stir them around, but in the end they're going to settle. The reality is, is they don't come together. And so these Pharisees, these Sadducees, are hearing this message of grace, and they're agreeing on one thing. This Jesus guy, he's got to go. He can't be around here. And so they come, and they despise together how they might trip him up. And so it's almost like they take turns. And so the Sadducees took a turn right before this, and it doesn't work. Jesus silences them. He makes them look foolish because he's God of the universe, and no one's going to fool God. And then, you know what happens? It's like watching a, a gang of middle school girls attack somebody, right? They're like, that didn't work. Okay, everybody come here. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, ask them now. Who's going to do it? You, 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 you're the lawyer, man. You go do it. All right, I'm going to go do it. So Jesus, what's the great command? And that's what our occasion is. That's what we run into. And they're doing this because they're trying to fight against the reality. Jesus' message is totally and completely unique. And now here's the thing, church. Once our rendering starts to look like God's, once our message starts to sound like that, and it starts to get produced out here in Galloway, out here in Lincoln Village, and Lincoln Village South, and the Loyal Green neighborhoods that we want to do, there's going to be some opposition. Because the world is filled of law keepers. They may not think like Pharisees and Sadducees in their doctrine, but they have their own doctrine, even if they don't call it that. They've got their own set of rules, and we're going to come along and we're going to say, it's not about the rules. Now in that, we're bringing good news, and we're whispering that good news, that gospel bell of come, all of you who don't have money, come and eat. Come into the kingdom. All you who are weary and broken, but people who don't think they're weary and broken don't like that message. Because they want to do it themselves. And so the opposition is going to come. I promise you, it's already happened. Our Facebook page will get blown up. Someone's going to complain. At some point in the course of this, I will probably get attacked. It's happened. I've done this church plant thing before. Come around, you start preaching the gospel of grace in a place where that gospel isn't being loud and heard, opposition will come. So what do we do? How do we prepare ourselves for that opposition? Well, Nick Rifkin uh, is a guy who, who he wrote a book, a really great book, it's called The Insanity of God. And in that book, what he did is he toured the world talking to persecuted Christians. Christians who experienced deep, deep, difficult persecution, prison, beatings, abandonments, those kind of things. You know what he found? The people who remained faithful he found two common threads in their lives. They had memorized scripture and they had memorized spiritual songs. They were so saturated in the word of God that when they were imprisoned and the Bibles were taken away, they still had it here. It was what they went to first. Now while in our culture of the opposition probably won't look like someone taking your Bible away, at least at this point. The question is this, is are you so saturated in the Word of God that when someone comes and they apply the heat, they apply the pressure, what is going to come out of you? What's going to come out of Redemption Church? Is it going to be the Word of God and this message of grace even to people who persecute us, who get angry with us? Or will it be something else? So I want to encourage you now, start preparing today for the opposition that I know we will face. Get in the Word of God. Memorize it. Memorize the kinds of songs that we just sang. 
so that in those moments, you might have a song that you can hum to yourself, so that you might respond rightly. In those moments of opposition and difficulty, that word of God comes welling up in your heart. You see, because what's also interesting about this is the difficulty of the passage, because we're going to talk about what it looks like to love God and love people. Jesus gives this command to these law keepers because he knows they can't keep it. So what he does to people who have not been humbled by the law is he throws more law at them. See, we, we often read these two commands of love God and love people, and we're like, yeah, awesome, I can do that. No, you can't. Not without Jesus' help, you can't. You cannot love God the way this passage is calling you to love God. And you do not love people like you love yourself. He throws this at them because he's trying to say, this is grace, is the only way. You want the law? You want the great law? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your mind, with all your strength. And he just pounds them with that. And that's what we see. So we look at our second point here, that the God-centered church loves God. So Jesus responds to these questionnaires and he says, He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now what's really interesting is you're really familiar, or you may just have a great memory from what we read from Deuteronomy 6, is this command actually, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, but it's not exact word for word. So in Matthew, Jesus says, heart, soul, mind. In Deuteronomy, he says, heart, soul, and might, instead of the mind. But then in Mark, where the same story is told again, he says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he gives these four things. So what's the point of the list? Are, are these misquotes of the Bible? Can we not trust it? No, I, I think they're all quoting the command. What happens a lot in the West is we want to make compartmentalize in these things. We want to divide them up. What does it mean to look, love God with my heart? What does it mean to love God with my mind? What does it mean to love God with my soul? And I want you to think less in terms of compartments to think in and more in the terms of one big commitment. It's not an exhaustive list. This is how you love God. It's an all-encompassing command. Love God with all that you hold. So if there's anything in your life that's not on this list, you don't get to say, all right, that one's mine. I'll have to love God with that. That's not how this works. See, what's happening is in Hebrew, it's how their language works, the heart was seen more than just like the emotions, like we might think in the West. But in Hebrew, when they said that word heart, they actually automatically assumed that you meant both your emotions and your intellect. So Jesus, when he's talking to this audience thousands of years later, is showing them yeah, hey, it's everything. That's why he adds in the word mind. He's supposed to know it includes your intellect. You have to love him with your emotions, your intellect, and your will. And then when he says it again in Mark, and even your strength and everything about you. So what Jesus is teaching them is that you have to love God with all things, all of the time. And that's what I'm trying to say is if we look at this and we say, I can keep the great commandment, you're not understanding what Jesus is trying to do. Because you don't do that. You don't love God with everything that you are in every single circumstance. You just don't. It's a part of being a sinner who desperately needs to be saved by grace and kept by grace. You can't do it on your own. So what's really helpful in my life is I started to learn that. I came across this, this diagram here. You can see on the screen, we call this the throne diagram. So you can see, if you can see up there all the way in the right-hand corner, I'm still learning how I, where I should stand. 
so you guys can see this kind of stuff. So I'm kind of going to move back and forth a little bit. You see there, and there's this kind of a staircase. And at the top of the staircase is a throne. Can you see that's a heart? So this is representing, that is the, the throne of your heart. And on there is a crown. So that crown right now, in the ideal heart, is representing Jesus. That Jesus sits enthroned on the throne of my heart. And I would say that's what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Is that Jesus sits at the top of that heart. Now here's the tricky thing about being a human being. Is you have these things called desires and wants. And you can fill them in. We just have A, B, C, D here. But you can put in everything you want. Your kids, your spouse, wealth, your house, whatever it is that you might be, your circumstances, what you might deal and believe is the ideal circumstance. Those desires are all there. And when Jesus sits as king of your heart, you know what's really great? All of those other desires start to fall into the proper place. And that's an amazing thing. We see that that's what flows out. But here's the tricky thing. When Jesus, or when something else tries to sneak up to the top of that throne, everything else starts to get a little bit out of whack. Everything else starts to not be quite as ordered in your life. See, your heart is deceptive. Your heart is tricky. Your heart is constantly, like you just saying, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave God I love. So that's, that hymn writer cries out, Oh, Lord. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it with your courts above. We all feel that tension and what that looks like. We can even see that then when we apply that to us as a church and maybe we talk about a, a communal heart that we all maybe share together. That all the while in the church planting process, there are lots of temptations that can come and sit on the throne that isn't Jesus. Probably the most tempting one, I know the one that I would probably feel, I'll need your accountability now. Is church growth? Is church growth bad? No, of course. We want our church to grow. In some ways, we need our church to grow, or else we won't be here much longer. Right? That's the, that's the reality of church planting. We want church growth. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We see people who are far from God be brought close to Him through His Son. We absolutely want that. But you know what happens when that sits on the throne? Everything else starts to go out of order. When church growth becomes the most important thing for the church, you guys start saying things like, Josh, can't be talking about sin this much. Don't do that. I know the Bible's talking about it, but man, don't be talking about sin. No one wants to hear that. They need uplifting messages. That's what my friends want to hear. Make me feel good. Don't convict me of my sin. Man, we need to, to, to really just throw a, a really big party, and man, don't, don't preach the gospel like you did at the bar. Don't do that. That'll push people away. Don't bring people around. Don't tell kids about the Bible. You know what? You know what we probably get us a longer line at that those inflatables that we had at that block party? Is it Ben stop telling kids stories about the Bible? If we stop doing that, I bet we get a little bit bigger of a crowd. That's probably true. You'll get a bigger crowd if you take away the bad news of the gospel, the news that we're sinners, we're only God. But you know what you also take away? Is the need for a savior. You don't need to be saved if there's no problem. It's a part of our responsibility to tell the good news so that we might give, or excuse me, tell the bad news so we might give them the good news. That's just one example. We can let lots of things in the church life. Style of music creeps, creeps onto the top of that throne. Man, I just, I just need this kind of music. 
and that would bring them in. That, that's what makes me happy. You gotta have a particular kind of kids ministry. That's, if that sits on the throne, if our kids sit on the throne, then that's gonna dictate everything that we do. None of those things are bad in of themselves. Don't mishear me. But they're just a problem when they sneak their way up onto the throne of our heart, when they become the number one thing. That's a serious problem. It will lead us astray into ruin. Because that's not what the God-centered church is supposed to be. That's not what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a place that exalts Christ above all things and trusts Him in everything. See, that's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Is you put Him first above everything. You know what's awesome about that? Is when we do that, when we love God with heart, soul, and mind, we will inevitably love people. See, God's center church loves people. Looking at verses 39 and 40, it says this, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. You know what's really funny is the lawyer, how many laws did he ask for? He just went one. Jesus hits him with two. Why? Because these realities are married to each other. They cannot be separated. A deep and abiding love for God always, always results in a deep and abiding love for people. There's no way to separate these realities. Listen to, to what uh, John writes in verse John 4, 20-21. It'll be on the screen. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John was a disciple who walked with Jesus. And when he's talking about that hymn in that passage, he's talking about Christ. This is the command that he gave us. That if you love God, you must love your brother. If you love God, you must love other they're, 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 they cannot be separated. A love for God will always result in a love for people. And as we see this too, I've, I've heard this passage, and I just kind of want to take a quick moment to kind of teach against that, a bad teaching that I've heard really often, is that a lot of people use this passage to then preach like, see, love yourself. The Bible says you need to love yourself. If you look closely at this passage, the Bible is not telling us to love ourselves. The Bible is assuming that you love yourself. Jesus knows what I just talked about in the throne diagram. You've got other loves. The Bible knows you love yourself. It's part of being broken and a sinner. We all love ourselves. We do what we want. You want to talk about a desire that tries to creep its ugly little way onto the throne of your heart over and over and over again? Self-love. The love of self loves to creep its way and take over Cast Jesus down and sit on that throne. This is not a call to love yourself. This is a call to deny yourself and to love Christ. That then leads to a love of other people. See, self-love is this tangled web. When we love ourselves, when we put ourselves on the top of our throne, life becomes confusing and you can't you don't know which way is up. And self-love, it leads to selfishness, self-obsession. And as strange as it is, self-loathing. 
despair, hatred of yourself. Because that's what happens when the world isn't set in its proper order. When Christ isn't there, everything starts to get flipped on its head and it's confusing. You feel like you're drowning and you don't know how to... If you allow yourself to creep onto that throne, you make everything about you and you very quickly find, man, this is terrible. Why isn't life working God's way? You're not living God's way. Exalt Christ to that throne, not yourself. Deny yourself. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, that's what it means to love neighbor. He says love your neighbor as yourself, is to say that person's desires, that person's goals, that person's life is more valuable than my own. And I will be like my Savior Jesus, and I will lay down my life for their sake. That's what it means to love self. You see, this, this passage that Jesus, or that, that command that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting from Leviticus 19. I want to read the two verses right before it. It's Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. It says this, you shall not hate your brother. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as I am. So this command to love your neighbor as yourself gives us some context. So what does it mean? Well, I think there's three helpful things that this can mean for you. You can love your neighbor by word, excuse me, by thought, word, and deed. You can love our neighbor by thought. Look back at that passage in Leviticus. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Thought. But you shall reason frankly with your brother. Word. Lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Deeds. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what's really helpful is with this Old Testament command, it gives us what we're not supposed to do. The New Testament helps us and it lets us know are supposed to do. The New Testament tells us that we are to put off certain things and then put on others. And so we can see here that we should not hate our brother, but rather love your brother in your heart. Think about your brother in a positive way. Believe the best is what Romans tells us today about your brother. You shall not use words that tear him down, but rather that build him up. Words like in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us, let every word that proceeds from your mouth give grace to the hearer as it is in the appointed time. That in that moment, you want to say, are you using words that build people up? Are you using words that are tearing them down? We sing the song of Judah a lot. Encourage one another and build each other up. Right? And the next word is, encourage one another and don't tear each other down. That's what it looks like to love neighbor. We're going to do that in our thoughts, in our words, and also in our deeds. What does it look like? What does it look like for you this week to look at the people around you, your neighbor, the people in, in our midst, and to actually put some tangible action into love? It's one thing just to say I love you. It's one thing even just to think that I love you. But we all know that we need to be shown and we need to see love on display. See, as we look at this reality of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no greater example that Jesus. That's that passage in 
Philippians tells us to do nothing out of selfless ambition or conceit, but to treat others as more important than ourselves. And it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who became a man, not for his sake, but for our sakes, became a man and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and he will bow to Jesus Christ is See, so what Jesus does is he shows us what it looks like to love people as you love yourself when he takes up that cross and he dies for sinful people. It's not a call to love people who are worth it. Love people who love you back. It's love your neighbor as you love yourself. Your neighbor is everyone. This is what drove Jesus to the cross for worthless sinners like tax collectors, prostitutes, me. context of the parable, Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who does this. That's why I get to say, tax collectors, prostitutes, people who are great sinners, but who are loving me, giving their lives to me, come and enter into the kingdom. No one else keeps this law. You do not love God with everything you are all the time. You certainly don't love your neighbor as you love yourself. But you know who did always loved his God in every circumstance. He always loved neighbor, even when they were spitting in his face, beating him, mocking him, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Our Savior, out of a love for God, which then flowed into a love for people, allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and die for sin. That's extraordinary. You don't do that. I don't do that. But what I'm asking is that we as a church will come together, we will look to Jesus, we will see that picture of total sacrificial love that is driven by a love for God and a love for people, and then we might sit down, and like Josiah looks at his dad and does the best that he can to render it. A redemptional church will come together and try to render that picture. Now, I am a new dad. You probably saw my kids uh, running around. And I pray for my kids every night. And what I quickly found as a new dad is we do this over and over and over again, especially when we were young. I almost like run out of things to pray for. Like, what do I do tonight? Because tomorrow night's coming. And I keep saying the same thing over and over again. And what I found, probably in the desperation of my heart and in those moments, I'm praying over my son Judah because he's the oldest. I just found myself, God. I just prayed because I didn't know what else to pray. That this little boy would grow up to love you with his heart, with all soul, all his mind, all his strength. God, please help you to love his neighbor as he loves himself. And we pray that over and over and over. So much so that sometimes he'll look at people and say, Daddy, is that my name? Yeah, that's your name. We pray that with him over and over and over. God, please, please help my son be a man who loves you with his heart. Soul, his mind, his strength, and help him love his neighbor as himself. Because I know if that happens, all the other things will set themselves in order. So as I come as a really new, green pastor, and I don't know what to pray for my small little church, that's what I'm going to pray right now. So let's pray together. Father, 
for the King of Kings, you are the Lord of Lords. You sit on your throne in heaven. Jesus, I pray that you would sit on the thrones of the heart of these people. That you might be enthroned among all of us. Lord, I ask that you have your way with us and with this church we would be centered around you and your gospel. And as that happens, God, I pray that our church would love you with all our heart, with all of our soul, 